We're looking at the life of Peter this semester. Uh, if you're not familiar with who Peter is, he's, he's the second biggest character in the New Testament uh, in the Bible. He is Jesus' closest friend. He's the person Jesus talks to the most. And we're looking at him for two reasons. To learn about who Jesus is through Peter's lens, but actually to also learn about who Peter is and what the life of somebody who's kind of trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus They'll use Peter as an example in that regard. And we'll see a lot of different ways that the life of a Christian is actually much messier than maybe what we anticipated. And that within the gospel and within this good news and within following this Jesus, there's a lot of room to be messy. And that's a good thing. And that's good for us. What's happening, what we looked at last week was Peter's first encounter with Jesus. And uh, and Jesus kind of asked these searching questions and says these kind of... Um, mysterious things that Peter doesn't fully get, and they just kind of give us a glimpse of where Jesus is going in Peter's life. And what we're going to look at this week is a passage from Luke 5. It's been a couple of months now since Peter has met Jesus. Uh, in some regard, Peter's Jesus is a carpenter who's wandering around and teaching Bible lessons. That's who he is to Peter. They've become good friends. Peter's aware that he's an authority on some level, that, that he's something more than just a carpenter who teaches Bible study. He carries kind of a sense of weightiness. But this passage is the passage where it seems like something really breaks through in Peter's understanding of who Jesus is. And who Peter is in verse 1 is very different from who Peter is in verse 11. And we're going to look at how does Peter of kind of the first couple of verses become the Peter of verse 11. Notice the transition that happens in his life. This is the Word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the Word of God... He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into, one of the, uh, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they they came and filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that God would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that as we look at Jesus coming into the life of Peter, that we would see ourselves, uh, that we would be unnerved by what you teach us, that we would allow you um, to be incomprehensible and mysterious, that we would allow ourselves to be a little bit afraid by that, and for us to see that there's maybe something good and that and something worthy of following you because of that. Dear Jesus, we need your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts now. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, as Teddy said, a couple of us were down in Santa Cruz for the last couple of days. And 
I've been in California for a little over a year now, and this was my first foray into surfer culture. Some of y'all probably know surfer culture already, but Santa Cruz is a surfing town. And it was really fascinating for the last two days to observe this world that revolves around surfing. And, uh, and surfing people are just, they're very impressive. Santa Cruz, the waves there are like nothing I ever saw. I grew up playing in the Gulf Coast, um, down in Panama City and things like that. The Pacific Ocean is just totally different. And it's a little overwhelming. And what's impressive about these surfers, their ability is impressive. I mean, we saw some amazing surfing this weekend. But what's more impressive to me and what fascinated me for the last two days was their devotion. Because we were staying at a house that was right on one of the main public entrances to some of the best surfing in Santa Cruz. And at 5.30 a.m., these like 20-year-old SUVs and like Saturn station wagons start rolling up. And you're like, who in the world... Why is there a crowd of people coming here at 5.30 a.m.? And it's these surfers who are just incredibly devoted. And the thing is, is I kind of thought the kind of people who wake up at 5.30 a.m. and come and surf, like, okay, that's just like crazy 16-year-old boys before school, right? Or like 18-year-old guys or college guys, and they have class at 10 a.m. Okay, the wave of people coming doesn't stop all day. And then, like, at 10.30 a.m., there are, like, 42-year-old men, like, rolling up. And who goes surfing at 10.30 in the morning on Tuesday afternoon and is 42 years old? I don't understand this dynamic. And that's what's going on. And so the question was, it's just impressive to see their devotion. Their whole life is wrapped around this thing called surfing. Their cars are completely outfitted for this changing thing they do in the middle of the road that somehow isn't inappropriate. Um, It's kind of amazing how they've mastered the ability to not, you know, take off all their clothes. They have all these changing stations. Everything in their life is oriented around surfing. Uh, what, What was interesting about Santa Cruz is the number of trailer parks there are. There are trailer parks everywhere because you know what surfers don't care about? They don't care about their housing. They're not trying to get the big house. They don't care. They want the cheapest possible house to get them as close as possible to the waves. That's what drives them. That's what centers them. They've left every... You you watch them, and this is what you're tempted to do. You've probably done. I definitely did it, is I kind of start making self-righteous judgments. of like, look, I mean, how pathetic is that? You're 42 years old. You're going to have skin cancer in three years if you don't have it already. You, You clearly don't have a job, you know? Uh, who knows where you live, I know that you smoke pot all night, right? <laughs> and what I'm doing is I'm looking at them and judging them because I don't want to admit kind of what we all know is true, which is actually they're probably happier than all of us. That's the reality, and we don't want to admit that because we're at Stanford and we're making something of ourselves and we're convinced we're going to be happy on the other end of this Stanford experience and this amazing career and this big house that we're going to have. And here are these people that have nothing and are really, really, really happy. They've left everything in order to become surfers. That's what happens to Peter in this passage. That's really our question. Is it possible to find something that's so compellingly beautiful that you're willing to leave anything to be with it? And the reality is, is we think freedom is having options to get whatever we want. But the reality is, these surfers are more free than anybody else. And their freedom is actually an intense love for one thing. And all of a sudden, they're freed actually from options. They're ten times freer than us precisely because they've chosen to no longer have options. This is Peter. He's freed from everything else 
because he's found one thing that's so compelling that he's willing to let go of the rest of his life and follow that thing. Yo, that's what we want. Don't you want to be free from the tyrannies of all the stuff every day that follows you on your scheduler and on your assignments and on your syllabus and all the student organizations and your parents and your family, right, and your friends? Wouldn't you want to be find something so compelling that all that stuff just kind of gets muted and you find rest? That's where Peter is in verse 11, but he's not there until after he goes through the first 10 verses. He finds something compelling. And what we're going to look at is that transition from this upper middle class fisherman to someone who leaves everything and follows Jesus. How do you get there? How do you go? This is our question for tonight. How do you go from being a casually religious person to leaving everything in order to follow Jesus? How do we go from Jesus kind of being auxiliary, kind of ancillary, kind of our, our, our magic genie that we just kind of want him in our life on the side to give us the things we want when we're not sure how we're going to get him to being something that centers us? And if you're not a believer and if you're here and you're considering Christianity, you're skeptical, you're asking questions and you're testing the waters, then at least agree with this much. Doesn't the prospect of loving something so deeply and powerfully that you'll forsake everything else for it. Okay, doesn't that sound like that's kind of getting close to the meaning of life? If you encounter something so good that it caused you to drop all the things we're clinging to, to simply be near near to that good thing, there's something about that that feels right. And again, this passage is also for Christians because we have all these other things we're clinging on to and we want Jesus to kind of fit into the lineup of the anxieties and the pressures and the responsibilities that we're carrying. We want to use him to kind of help us out in these different areas. But the prospect of leaving that behind and following him is still ominous to us. How does Peter go from being casually religious to verse 11? They left everything and followed him. And so we're just going to walk through the narrative together. That's why there's not really a complete outline. I didn't come up with one. We're just going to walk through the story together. So here's Peter. He's cleaning his nets. You fish at night on the Sea of Galilee. He's, fi- he's cleaning his nets the next day. And Jesus runs into logistical problems. They're acquaintances at this point. Peter's had him in his house. Um, and they're in, in, so they know each other. He actually healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, so Peter's been around Jesus' ministry for a while. He's cleaning his nets. Jesus is preaching nearby. Jesus has a logistical nightmare. The crowd's kind of pressing in on him. And he just says, hey, Peter, can you help me out? You mind if I get in your boat? You just push me out a couple of meters and I'll be able to preach to everybody. Just solving a logistical problem right here. And he preaches the word and he gets finished. And what happens when he gets finished is this. This is what happens in the following kind of movements. Jesus is starting to show Peter who he really is. Specifically what he's starting to do is he's giving him, he's pulling back the curtain for a second and showing Peter a glimpse of Jesus the God-man, Jesus as divine, Jesus who is God. And you know, in the Bible... When, when men come into the presence of God, it's a terrifying thing. If you read the encounters in Scripture where people come into the presence of God, 
one of two things has to happen for people to survive that encounter. Either God has to veil his own glory, he has to cover himself, because his glory is so powerful it will literally destroy men, or God has to protect the men. He has to veil them. He has to cover them. Somebody's got to be covered covered because God in all of his divinity and his undiminished deity is consuming, is destroying. If God is God, he's not manageable or approachable. That's what happens anytime people get a glimpse at God's glory. And what's happening here, the way Jesus goes about showing Peter that he is God... He just peels back the curtain for a second, and this is how he does it. And he does it in a way that, if you can kind of enter into the story, is incredibly annoying. Jesus is actually annoying in this story. Because this is what happens. Have you ever had someone who has no competence or interest or expertise in the field that you have competence, interest, and expertise? Have you ever had someone come and master that? And what I mean by that is this. I have this, here's an illustration. I have this brother-in-law. He's one of my best friends. His name is TJ. TJ is a phenomenal preacher. We're both preachers. He is an absolutely incredible preacher. He can preach circles around me. We went to seminary together. They actually have a preaching award. TJ won the preaching award. I accept that. I'm okay with that. I'm justified in Jesus. He's my righteousness. (laughs) TJ is a better preacher. But, like what we often do with a lot of our friends, we like to figure out some other areas that we're more competent in. So like, all right, TJ, you got preaching, right? So my little area that for a long time I wanted to prove myself in, and I'm not going to talk about it, and you're all going to roll your eyes, is this little kind of fitness world called CrossFit. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it. I'm simply going to illustrate with it. I've kind of given some time and resources to it over the last two and a half years. I've built out my garage. I've been to training seminars. I've been trained by some of the elite trainers in, on, in the world. Kind of gone and spent a weekend with them. It's something I've invested in. I've experienced some, some small success, small improvement in it. And like it was my domain, you know. And I, and I was doing pretty good at it two and a half years in. And TJ... February of this year decides he wants to check out CrossFit, right? On day one, he squats. The first time he puts a barbell, I realize this is meathead weightlifting stuff, but go with me here. He puts a barbell on his back for the first time in his life and back squats 130 pounds more than I can. Day one, he dominates me. Not only that, but within the first two months, now he lives in Birmingham, Alabama, Within the first two months, I start hearing from people around Birmingham, Alabama that don't work out at his gym about TJ. These people don't know I'm related to TJ, and they're like, they're just friends of mine. They're like, hey, have you heard about this guy named TJ? <laughs> have you heard about what he did on the squad? Have you heard about what he did with pull-ups? All this kind of stuff. It's completely irritating. On day one, he walks in. He doesn't know the name of the machines. He doesn't know the names of the exercise. He doesn't know how to do them well. His form's terrible. It looks like he's going to strain something or like his back's going to go out. And he dominates. He completely dominates. You know what that does to me? It helps me get over myself pretty quickly. Right? Which is exactly what I needed. Here's the point. Next to supremacy, I realize who I really am. And I stop thinking high thoughts about myself. And I stop getting kind of enamored with my own competence and my own abilities. Now, this is a much grander skill. Here's Simon Peter. He's a fisherman. It's his profession. It's his family business. And a carpenter who teaches Bible lessons watches Peter fail at his craft. Right? 
bad night, didn't catch anything. And his friend, who's a carpenter and teaches the Bible on the side, comes and says, Peter, let me tell you about fishing. How irritating is that? Right? This is not Jesus' bread and butter. He's not a fisherman. Peter just, he catches Peter at the lowest moment. He just failed at his craft. He just finished cleaning his nets. How annoying is that? He just got everything put away. You know? Peter obeys him, but it's clear that he's not all in. The text says, you know, Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing, but at your word, we'll let down the nets. It's clear that there's a little pushback, a little irritation there. And they have a catch that's not merely big, it's not merely large. It's so overwhelming, the nets tear. It's so overwhelming, the first boat begins to sink, they bring out a second boat, and two fishing boats begin to sink. Right? There's something significant happening. And if you're Peter, there are two things that are going through your mind that he's wrestling with. And it's this. First of all, he's thinking, all right, my competency and my expertise are not terribly impressive. Next to real supremacy. And secondly, and we see this in the text, they're astonished. They're caught off guard. They don't know what to do. Secondly, Jesus is something bigger and more terrifying than I thought he was. First of all, he realizes my competency and my expertise are just not terribly impressive. And secondly, Jesus is bigger and even more terrifying than I thought he was. This kind of ha- You've had these encounters probably where you've realized you're smaller than you thought. This happened at Santa Cruz this weekend. There were, there were wetsuits and boogie boards at the house that we stayed at. And I didn't realize this until we got in from the beach, but behind the wetsuits, there's a small sign that says, these waves are black diamond waves. Now, what that means is, if you don't know what black diamond waves are, you don't get in them. It said, I have no idea what a black diamond wave is. Now I know by experience, but not through Wikipedia. I wish it was Wikipedia that taught me, but it was experience that taught me what a black diamond wave was. It's, it literally says, only experience, the caution, these are black diamond waves, only experienced surfers should enter the surf. So I get out there and I follow Jack Doobie, which is always dangerous. If you're going to leave everything and follow someone, let it be Jesus, not necessarily Jack Doobie. But Jack goes out there all confident in his wetsuit. I go out there all semi-confident in my wetsuit. We swim out there and, and, you know, pretty quickly it dawns on me like, this is not the Gulf of Mexico. This is like a different arena. This is kind of a different level of power we're encountering here. And, you know, I watch the surfers who are amazing and, like, artistic in what they do. And it's one of those sports, too, where you watch surfers and you're like, oh, that looks easy, which is always dangerous. And um, so we get out there and you wait. You know, you wait for the right waves. You wait for the big waves and everything. And, we, of course, we have boogie boards for these waves, which is also a joke. <laughs> and finally, the granddaddy wave comes. You know, the one you've been waiting for, the one that's crashing far, much further out because it's significantly bigger. And... Again, I haven't learned all the physics of boogie boarding. Still haven't quite mastered them after this encounter. But you don't just ride straight forward on the top. You're supposed to ride along the tunnel, right? Are you familiar with this? Okay. I saw that in videos, but for some reason that never really entered in my mind, so I decided to go this way. And what that does on a 12-foot wave is it sends you straight down. And when you go straight down, for two seconds, you remember somewhere at some point in your history that someone said, hold your breath and relax. And I got two seconds of holding my breath and relax. And then like 11 seconds to, I don't know, it felt like eight minutes of, hold my breath and relax, hold my breath and relax. Right? 
it's flashing through my mind like Elizabeth's going to kill me. This is irresponsible as a father. What am I doing out here? I'm completely terrified. You never know which way is up. You're hitting rocks. You're hitting sand. You see the sky and then the sky disappears. And it's completely terrifying. And I simply bring that up and, and, and I immediately got out of the water. And it took me a good 40 minutes to get the confidence to get back in the water. And even then I was really nervous and I stood on the beach and kept calling people back in. I'm like, I don't think you should go back. Let's just, let's do the small waves up here. Here's what happened. I encountered a power much larger than me and it terrified me. That's what Peter's happening in Peter's life right now. We've all had these moments where you encounter something bigger than you and all of a sudden... You know, the thing we like to think about the most is us. The thing we think is the biggest, the most powerful, and the most competent is us. But every now and then in life, you encounter something big, and you realize, like, I'm actually moderately small and pretty powerless. That's what happens to Peter right here. You know, God, here's the thing. God's not impressed by your admission to Stanford. Did you know that? He's not impressed and never will be impressed by your GPA. It gets you no Jesus points. That's really true. And it's humorous, but it's actually true. Your competence is not impressive to God. My competence is not impressive to God. Your expertise, your moral record, whatever it is for you, your conservatism, your liberalism, your how green you are. God, guess what? Nobody's getting into the kingdom of heaven for driving a Prius or a Tahoe. God's not impressed by your power and your competence and your expertise. And to think that he is and to think that we have made something of ourselves because of our competence and our expertise and our accomplishment means that we have far too casual a view of who God really is. We think he's impressed by our big accomplishments and and we approach him like he's this warm, fuzzy genie and mainly what his role in our life is is we're supposed to pray pray to him for either an A or B or a boyfriend or girlfriend, Right? That's what he, we've domesticated our idea of God. And the reason that we've domesticated him is because if we let him really be as wild and untamable as he is, it would be terrifying. If we truly entered into how wild and untamable he is, it would be terrifying. That's why we've domesticated him. That's why we've made him a genie in the bottle. Because that's manageable. The God of the Bible is not manageable. A lot of times in Scripture, to demonstrate God's bigness... It talks about nature, it talks about the stars, it talks about mountains, it talks about the sea. Because when we see those things, and maybe you've had those things, when you look at those things for a moment, that's some of those times in life where you get a sense of your own smallness. Right? When you encounter something more permanent, more powerful, bigger, something that's going to be here long after you're gone. And what Scripture calls us to do in those moments when you encounter nature, those big things in nature, is it says, now hear this. God holds those in His hand. Those big things that give you a sense of who you really are and how unimpressive your GPA really is, those big things that give you a healthy perspective, God holds them in His hand. They're small to Him. As long as God remains casually approachable, we are never going to find Him compelling enough to leave everything and follow as long as God's casually approachable, He's never going to be compelling enough to leave everything and follow. We've tamed our concept of Him, and we haven't let the fearsomeness and the wildness of Him unnerve us. 
We need to read scripture and get uncomfortable sometimes. It's a good spiritual exercise to be uncomfortable with what this says about God. If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, that's a problem. Don't tame him. Be terrified. It's a good thing. He encounters Jesus and he becomes unnerved. He's undone. And he realizes Jesus is something far bigger than what he understood. That's where Peter is. But then he doesn't simply become undone. He's not simply astonished. We're told he's astonished. But he expresses a very specific sentiment. Notice what Peter says in verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's a really interesting sentiment to have. Right? Here's this guy. What's happening is it's beginning to break into Peter's mind that maybe this is God. And he has this, and he does it by this kind of odd miracle. And Peter's response is, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, they become not just astonished, but they actually become keenly aware of their unfitness to be in his presence. When we, in Scripture, whenever people encounter God's presence, when Isaiah does, when Moses does, when Ezekiel does, when John does, they all say some version of this statement. They say, woe is me. They say, let me die. They say, I need to be away from this. Everybody becomes aware when they encounter the presence of God that they cannot endure the presence of God because of their unfitness. Because they're not dressed appropriately because that kind of, because my life and the things I know about me disqualified me away from being around perfect holiness and deity. I'm not the kind of person that gets to be in God's presence. And everybody who comes in His presence becomes keenly aware of that. If the concept of being near to God is something you like to sing about on Sunday and it only invokes warm fuzzies and not some trembling, you don't know who God is. If you like to sing about being near to God and being in His presence, I'm not saying that's all wrong. But if it's only warm fuzzy and something about that also doesn't terrify you, then you still don't understand who God is. Peter's showing what's natural, which is when you come into the presence of perfect holiness, of perfect goodness and justice and beauty, you're shaken by the sense that I'm not fit for this kind of presence. I I don't have the right to be near this kind of perfection. And this kind of beauty. My life and what I know about it, it totally disqualifies me from being near to him. There's a, an amazing scene in, in a beautiful and hard movie called Magnolia, which I kind of recommend and kind of don't. It's, it's kind of amazing, but you've got to be willing to kind of sort through some darkness in this movie because it really shows the human heart on a powerful level and a deep level and a dark level. And in this movie, there's this, there's this police officer named Jim. And Jim is this kind of honorable, beautiful, kind-hearted, generous, gentle, serving man. He's just the ideal man in the sweetest possible way. And when he's out on a call, he meets this woman named Claudia. And Claudia is literally a cocaine addict and a prostitute. She's addicted to cocaine in order to support her habit. She's begun to sleep with men for whatever she can get. And she's frantic, and she's terrified, and her life is falling apart. And they meet, and Jim kind of... And kind of his innocence and his sweetness says, I'd love to take you out on a date. Kind of gets a little crush. And they go out on a date, and he is kind, and he is generous, and he's a servant, and he honors her. And it's so unnerving to her to be in the midst of that kind of kindness, she actually has to go and snort cocaine during the date just to suffer through it. 
And it's not because she hates being there. It's because she knows she's not, a person like her is not allowed to love being there. And so what happens in the conversation is she says, I'm really nervous that you're going to hate me soon. You're going to find out stuff about me and hate me. And Jim says, like, what? What do you mean? She says, you have so many good things. There's so many good things about you. You're so together. You're a police officer. You seem so straight without problems. And Jim says, whatever you think will scare me, it won't. I can listen to you. You shouldn't be scared of scaring me off or anything I'll think. Just say it and I'll listen to you. And she says, you don't know how stupid I am. You don't know how crazy I am. I have troubles. And he says, it's okay. I'll take everything at face value. I'll be a good listener to you. Say what you want and you'll see. And she leans over the table and she kisses him. And Claudia says, she gets it. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And he says, what? And she says, just say no. Just let me go. Just let me walk out. She knows that a girl like her is not allowed to have a gal in kill. A girl like her is not allowed. She's forfeited her right to experience that kind of kindness. A kind of kindness that continues coming at her in spite of who she is. So much so, she's actually terrified by that kind of kindness. To even enter into and receive that kind of kindness, she's so unnerved by it, she has to continue to snort cocaine to cope with receiving that kind of kindness. It's kind of beautiful. And that's where Peter is. He's in the presence of God. And what Peter does is Peter's waiting for it all to come crashing down. Peter's aware of who he is. And he's aware that, well, if I'm in the presence of a holy God, when's lightning coming? When's lightning coming? I don't deserve to be here. It's not just encounter. See, he's not just encountering the supremacy and the power of God. He's encountering the goodness of God. And the goodness of God is so good that it's actually also unnerving. And you haven't encountered the Jesus of the Bible. And you haven't encountered God until it dawns on you that this kind of goodness is too good. Tim Keller actually says the objection to Christianity that he considers the most, that he thinks is the most persuasive, the most persuasive objection, is that it's too good. This kind of God cannot be this good to people like us. That's where Peter is. And he feels like, I'm not allowed to be in the presence of this kind of goodness, of this kind of blessing. So we want a manageable God who recognizes, yeah, right, we'll fess up to some faults, but we also want him to recognize that you know, there's some good things I've kind of done in my life. And we want him to say, you know, let's stay on decent terms, you know. And this God's manageable, and he doesn't unnerve us. We like this kind of easy-to-manage God that recognizes some bad things, recognizes some good things, and we basically say, hey, we tolerate each other. I know, you know, I'm not qualified for everything, but extend me a little bit of grace. We don't mind that kind of manageable God. But what about the prospect of the God of the universe, the creator, the one who holds the stars in his hands? What if I told you that if you trust in Jesus, he looks at you in your face and he says to you, knowing everything about you, well done, good and faithful servant. He sees everything down through your life. And what he has to say to that is a well-done, good and faithful servant. If you know yourself, you know that kind of goodness is terrifying. So much so that the biggest objection that I think any of us probably actually have to Christianity is that just can't be true. There's got to be something more. There's no way he can look at who I am and say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
That kind of goodness is terrifying. And that's the goodness that He has. That's the mercy that He has. That's the grace that He has to make you the object of His blessing and His affection and His acceptance. That God's assessment and posture towards you, that His verdict on your life is well done. It's too good. It unnerves us. And you haven't encountered how good God is until you realize that that's too good for somebody like me. That people like me don't get loved that way by God like that. That's the path of Simon Peter going from casually religious to leaving everything and following Jesus. God is too untamable and God's too good such that he's even uncomfortable in God's goodness. That's where he is. That's the path of that. that It's working through those emotions in the presence of God's power and his kindness is what sets Peter on that path from casual religious to leaving everything to follow Jesus. God gives him a glimpse behind the curtain of his holiness and also his goodness. And they're terrified, Peter says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And what's Jesus' response? Don't be afraid. You know the command given in Scripture most often from God to men is, it's not love God, it's not love Jesus, it's not love your neighbor. The command God gives most often is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And that's what he gives Peter here. Do not fear. He's gonna, Jesus is going to say that more often to his disciples than anything else throughout the New Testament because they're going to encounter more glimpses of kind of the unveiled deity and the unveiled supremacy and the unveiled goodness of Jesus. And Jesus realizes, you know what? When you encounter how good I am, when you encounter how supreme I am, you know what I've got to do? I've got to tell you it's okay. Don't be afraid because it is fearful. It's even terrifying to encounter that kind of goodness and supremacy. And the reason he says, do not fear, the reason is because the God of perfect power and the God of perfect goodness and the God of trembling holiness is also the God of comfort and grace. Peter's unfit, but he's not destroyed. He knows he's unfit, but he's not destroyed when he encounters just a brief glimpse into God's perfections. He's a sinner, but he's not punished And he's not banished from the presence of God. And the reason why is because the holy and the powerful God, because Jesus, who is God with us, God covering himself, putting a rein in on his power so that he can walk among us, the God who chose to enter into our experience. This is the distinctive, one of the many distinctives of Christianity is that the God of the Bible enters into the human experience. He's tempted like us. He's hungry like us. He's tired like us. He cries like us. This God, who is God, enters into our experience and He forgives people like us. He fully comprehends what Peter is struggling with and will continue to struggle through. But Jesus came not just to put on a show of God's power, but to actually also be the instrument of God's love and comfort and goodness and grace and mercy. Peter knew he was unfit. It's kind of like not having the right clothes for the right occasion. Who I am, this life, makes me inappropriate in God's presence. And the way Isaiah talks about what Jesus does is, Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, and he calls it a robe of righteousness, and he takes, on, takes off his perfect obedience and sets it on your shoulders so that when God looks at you, he sees that righteous robe. 
talks about our life as our clothes that we've knit for ourselves. And God looks at that and says, that's perfect. And that's why God says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, because you receive credit for Jesus' obedience. What happens in the cross is not just that Jesus receives credit for our sins and bears the punishment that kind of our inadequacy deserves, but he also gives us his perfection and sets it on us so that when we stand before God, who is judge, God says, well done. God declares you righteous. Peter doesn't even fully understand that at this point. Right? There's nothing that leads us to believe that he understands that. We kind of stand on the other side of Peter coming into this life of following Jesus. He doesn't fully understand that the cross is the climax of Jesus' kindness toward us. He's still not getting it, but it's beginning to dawn on him that I don't deserve to be in the presence of this God, but he continues to allow me to be near. And what happens is this. The way Peter goes from casually religious to leaving everything to follow Jesus is this. He encounters God's kindness. And Paul tells us in Romans 2, verse 4, what God's kindness does. You know what God's kindness does? It leads us to repentance. Repentance is a fancy biblical word. The Greek word is metanoia. And what it means is to change your mind. To leave your identity and other things and turn towards Jesus. They left everything and followed him. That's another way of describing repentance. But notice what changes him. And this, is re- this, is, this is the crux of the text. Not fear. That's not what changes him. Even though there's even fear in this passage. Not a desire to be different so that God will like him. What changes him is God's kindness. That's the difference between being casually religious and leaving everything to follow Jesus. Let's pray.